despises tradition. I think we live in a time where the world is in such a state of self-delusion and self-absorption about its own wisdom, its own righteousness, its own values, its own superiority to everything that has come before. We live in the age of the modern, progressive, social, evolutionary mindset. Right? Where old is bad, new is good, old is dumb, old is backwards, new is cutting edge. We're smarter now, we're better now than we've ever been before. That is the attitude that we see in politics. It's the attitude that kids like yours and mine have to deal with with teachers every day. It's the attitude we see in pop culture. Old's bad, new is good. What, what possibly could we learn from the backward people that came before us? But the problem is, is that this self-absorption, I can't speak this morning, absorption, the self-absorption of ourselves as the best thing ever is not just a problem in the world, but it bleeds into the church too. That our doctrine, our ideas are better than the doctrine that came before. Right? We understand true spirituality better than anyone else has before. Right? The past has nothing to teach me, nothing to teach us. If we're going to be the church of the 21st century, we must do things differently, better, more efficiently, more flashy, more loud, more proud. And as we look at the landscape of the church, it's sad to me how many ministers of the gospel have indeed abandoned the gospel for self-help messages, for scratching the itching ears of those that are coming, of watering down the truth in order to build bigger churches and attract more people. And all the while making shipwreck of their faith and the faith of those who are coming. Uh, indeed, in, uh, in 1 Corinthians 3, we hear this warning of this minister that makes it through the flames of judgment, but everything he built was burned up in the fire. One of my professors in seminary described this as a minister who still believed the gospel himself, but failed to give that gospel and failed to build the church on sound doctrine and the things of the gospel, and it was all lost in the day of judgment. As we come to this second letter that Paul writes to the church in Thessalonica, he's writing to a church that is suffering, and the antidote to that suffering and the antidote to falling away from the Lord is indeed following the apostolic tradition. It's remarkable how many times in this letter Paul points back to the tradition or the faith that they heard from them or their gospel. Indeed, I've, I counted at least 15 references in 2 Thessalonians related to the apostolic faith and tradition. 
I want to point out just a few before we get underway with the letter this morning. For example, look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 2. We actually see the fraudulent claim of apostolic authority when he says, tells them to not be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to that effect that the day of the Lord has come. Indeed, there's fraudulent messages about what the apostles are saying. But if you look then um, as well at chapter 1, verse 10, you see Paul's reference to our testimony kind of halfway through the verse there. In chapter 2, verse 14 You see, Paul referred to the gospel as our gospel. That is the gospel that the apostles delivered, the true, authentic gospel. In chapter 2, verse 15, Paul is telling them to stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, the apostolic traditions given by Christ's apostles, including Paul. In chapter 3, verse 4, you see Paul expressing his confidence in them that they are doing and will do the things that he and the apostles have commanded. Chapter uh, 3, verse 6, again, Paul commanding them to follow his apostolic authority. uh, Chapter 3, verse 17, likewise, we see Paul having to deal with Well, one more thing, actually, in chapter 3, verse 6. Also, uh, at the end of that verse, he tells them and warns them against those who do not walk according to the tradition that you receive from us. And then in chapter 3, verse 17, he has to remind them of the sign of genuineness. That is, Paul signing the letters to know that this apostolic teaching is genuine. So it's not on the immediately obvious as we read 2 Thessalonians, but as you you look at all of these places, Paul is continuing to point the church back to the apostolic faith. Kind of to put another way, he's saying to them, and the Spirit is saying to us today, be a New Testament church. If you want to survive and thrive to the day of glory, be New Testament Christians Be a New Testament church. Follow the tradition of the apostles. Of course, that word tradition has been perverted and twisted by many. We talked last week about the Roman Catholic Church that claims that its popes continue to speak the apostolic word today. There are, of course, we'll get into later, but a lot of, in the Pentecostal world, Men standing up claiming to be capital A apostles, speaking fresh revelation from God and doing signs and wonders to authenticate their apostolicity. But it is false. And there are many today that are standing up priests in large churches, ministers in large churches, claiming in teaching things contrary to the word of God. That's not the tradition to follow. The tradition that we're called to follow is what the apostles taught. 
our Lord Jesus Christ gave us the apostles not only to write the New Testament, but also to teach us how to understand the Old Testament. Like on the road to Emmaus, where Jesus told the disciples how the law and the prophets and the Psalms were fulfilled in him. You know, we're like, I wish I could be there to hear that. Well, guess what? That's what the New Testament is. This is the apostolic faith given once for all for the saints. And so as we move through 2 Thessalonians, Paul's going to continue to point back to the gospel, to the traditions that the church authentically received from the true apostles. And that's the faith that they needed to follow. And that's the faith that we need to follow if we want to see each other. As glorious as it is today for me to see all of you, how much more unspeakably glorious will it be to see one another on the day of glory with the people of God. And if we want to be counted among that number, Paul's calling us to follow the faith, the tradition of the apostles. So let's dig into this letter then. We see in this letter Paul addressing four specific issues that are plaguing a suffering church. And with each of those issues, he points them in one way or another back to the apostolic faith. So let's dive in and see what Paul and what the Spirit through the Apostle Paul has to say to us today. The first thing that Paul addresses to a suffering church is discouragement. Discouragement. In chapter 1, verse 4, right before we get to this point, he rejoices that the Thessalonians are growing in faith and their love for each other, despite all the persecutions and afflictions that they're enduring. Then here in this first point, from chapter 1, verse 5 to verse 12, where he addresses discouragement, He's going to give them the antidote and give them courage. We see uh, beginning in chapter 1, verse 5, the judgment at Christ's coming. The judgment at Christ's coming. And Paul is about to give them encouragement, if you want to just put it in a sentence, that persecution gives hope to those who believe the apostolic testimony. Persecution gives hope to those who believe the apostolic testimony. And the reason that persecution gives hope, Paul's going to show us here, is because the persecution of, of wicked people against Christians is actually a sign of their own judgment. The way that unbelievers treat you in the world and treat the church because you are a Christian is actually a sign of their own judgment. It's a confirmation of their wickedness. It's a confirmation that they are part of the kingdom of darkness. And likewise, it's also an affirmation if you suffer as a Christian that God will preserve you on the day of glory. This is really a profound 
section of scripture. Let me read just a few verses of it to you. Chapter 1, verse 5. Paul referring to the persecutions and afflictions the Thessalonians are facing. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God. So first of all, God, if he lets you suffer, he's considering you worthy of the kingdom of God. And then he goes on, for which you are also suffering, verse 6, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. And he encourages the church that this is not going to last forever, this persecution, this suffering. Indeed, verse 9, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of our Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony, here's this link to the apostolic faith again, because our testimony to you was believed. So what Paul is saying, suffering church, you who have believed our apostolic testimony, the suffering you are facing right now at the Carpenters Guild because you are not worshiping the local God of the carpenters, or the jewelers, you know, the, all the artisans, we, we talked about this last week, in the Roman Empire had their own god that was their patron god to support their industry, right? And, but now these Christians are being persecuted because they are not paying homage to these demons, Just in the same way that you get persecuted when you don't affirm the LGBTQ agenda that's being shoved in your face to affirm. Or countless other social immoralities and perversions. And you suffer for it. You lose promotions over it. You could lose your job because of it. And the same thing that we're facing today is what the church faced then. And he's reminding them, far from this being a sign of shame for you, this is a sign of your worthiness because God considers you worthy to suffer for the kingdom of God. And indeed, it's not going to last forever because Jesus will come and he will throw the wicked into the fires of eternal destruction away from his glory and away from the saints, world without end. Amen. And that day we can look forward to as suffering Christians, as a suffering church, is when our Lord Jesus comes and we will marvel. Whether we're alive when he comes or we're raised from the dead to behold his coming, we will 
marvel. I love verse 10. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints. When the full expression of the chief end of man to glorify God and to enjoy him forever will be realized. When he comes on the day to be glorified by his saints. To be marveled at among all those who believe. And why will that be a day of joy for us? Because we believed the testimony of the apostles. Verse 10. Because our testimony to you was believed. And so then Paul goes on in verses 11 and 12 to pray for them. That God would double down on your resolve. Your resolve to fight the good fight. For every work of faith, that the name of Christ would be glorified in you. That as you get up for work tomorrow and you go to work, working hard, working diligently, not being a jerk, not being high-minded, but being a sober-minded believer, that the name of Jesus would be glorified in you as if you had his name written right on your suit or your dress or your uniform that you would do honor to your uniform, to the name of Jesus. And to do that, we must hold fast to the apostolic faith. So Paul deals with discouragement. I mean, how discouraging is it when you suffer? It is not fun, right? Whether you're a minister or a church member or a believer in this world, whether it's your own family members, whether it's colleagues, whoever it is in the world, that is persecuting you, slandering you. It's not fun. And it's really easy to burn out, isn't it? And just give up or give in. How many slides have we seen of ministers or of churches to just give in to the culture because the pressure seems too much? But here we have a ready antidote to that slide and to giving up. Paul points us to the day of glory. He reminds us why we suffer. He reminds us that when we suffer, it's because God actually considers us worthy. And he reminds us that it's not going to last forever. And that day of glory, that day of joy, that day of just complete marveling at the glory of our Lord, you know, among the saints, is coming. So let the encouragement of the apostolic tradition fortify you for the battle fortify you for the battle you know we've we sang a lot of psalms that dealt with lament or war today you know and as i think a lot of times you read the old testament psalms we're like well I don't, no one's trying to shoot me today but as we understand the old in light of the new we also come to realize that our ultimate enemy is the devil the world, the flesh, and the devil, that's the things that the Christians of old renounced at their baptisms. Those things are the enemies, and that's what we're fighting against. And if we don't have the courage and the fortification that the apostolic faith gives us, we're going to crumble, and we won't make it to that day, and we'll fall away. So let's hold fast to the apostolic tradition the second issue that Paul addresses in this letter is deception. Deception. And we see this in chapter 2, verses 1 to 17. 
Paul deals with deception. And he's going to argue in this chapter, or this section, to stand firm in the apostolic tradition against satanic deception. You know, sometimes as Christians, we live as functional Gnostics. So Gnosticism was a, was a Greco-Roman philosophy, and it also became a, an early church heresy that kind of dealt with this idea that the spirit's good, the physical is bad, or the physical doesn't matter, uh, which led many to actually sin, thinking whatever they did in the body wasn't an issue just as long as their spirit was pure. That, uh, that whole notion led to things like we see like the Masonic temples, the kind of secret hidden knowledge kinds of cults or secret societies. All of this stuff is related to this idea. But sometimes when we think about our spirituality, we think like functional Gnostics. Like, well, basically, if a true, like, Wonder or miracle happens, that's obviously of God. And we forget the fact that Satan is real and that God actually allows Satan to deceive people with false signs and wonders. So in this case, I'm not merely talking about, say again, guys like in the New Apostolic um, It's called the New Apostolic uh, Reformation, which is not a true apostolic reformation. The guy's saying, I'm a capital A apostle. God is speaking infallibly through me. I think of uh, false teachers like Bill Johnson, for example, Um, the Bethel Redding movement, um, things like that, and other health, wealth, prosperity, gospel teachers, the Kenneth Copelands, the people uh, that you often see on TV, the leg pullers, no kidding, where they'll just ask people, sit down, I'm going to straighten your leg, and they pull, oh, you've been healed, you know. So there's a lot of fake stuff. I mean, Bill Johnson has glitter falling from the ceiling, claiming that's the Shekinah glory of God. You know, you have all of these silly things, But people are genuinely deceived by them. People are genuinely deceived by them. But not only that, it is also possible. And I have have heard of stories of members who were once walking in darkness of the devil doing things, crazy things in their midst that they saw with their own eyes. So that the sign of genuineness is not that a miracle or a strange thing happened because we're actually told in this letter and in this passage that Satan is going to come working with all sorts of false signs and wonders to deceive the people um, who have refused to love the truth. Look with me. We're going to get to the man of lawlessness, which I'm sure a lot of you are wondering about in a moment. But look with me at verse 9 of chapter 2, where Paul says, The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing, because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. And again, this is another point back to the apostolic message, the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. 
and I've seen with my eyes good and bad. First, the good of people who have been delivered from these false ministries or delivered from the kingdom of darkness, delivered from this deception, which is a miracle, but also people that have given way to it and are thoroughly deceived and indeed we see condemned by God because they refuse to believe the truth. They refuse to be New Testament Christians, a New Testament church, and God gives them over to the delusion of Satan. Now the presenting issue, we're, we're right now we're talking about the substance of the issue. The presenting issue for the church of Thessalonica is that they received a fraudulent letter from Paul or from one of the apostles about the, the day of the Lord, which was disturbing the peace of the church. We see in chapter 2, verse 1, Paul says, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Like you missed the boat. Like you missed the rapture. <laughs> you know, you missed the boat. We don't know all that's going on, but Paul's going to go on to talk about the man of lawlessness. And as we're not doing a verse-by-verse -verse series through this letter today, I'm not going to get into all of this. Uh, we just don't have time. Um, but there were, there's different theories about who this man is. What we know is that whoever this man of lawlessness will be, he's going to claim to be God. He's going to claim to be God. And there's this interesting statement in verse 7 about the one who restrains it. And uh, that's why we read our, the, um, the chapter in Daniel today. Some think this will be, uh, well, I'm, I'm not even going to get, I don't have the time to get into it. But some think this might be one of the angels, like the angel Michael. Because in the Greek Septuagint, the Greek version of the Old Testament uh, in Daniel, we talk about, it talks about Michael passing away. And then this lawless one is going to be unleashed to release his deception. It's clear in this letter that the Thessalonians know what he's talking about, but we are only getting one side of the phone conversation. So we're not exactly sure. But the main thing we need to understand here is that just then as in now, there's going to be a lot of people giving you really bogus um, teaching about the end times, and they're going to make a ton of money on you or on on, uh, I'd say, naive believers. There's going to be many false teachers claiming they have the Spirit of God to speak infallible truth to you about, God told me that you need to do X, Y, or Z. I'm not talking about a Christian saying, I feel the Lord leading me to do this. That's different than saying God told me or God told me to tell you and to treat that infallibly like you are a prophet of old. And there's going to be many that are going to seek, like a clever charlatan, to make you alarmed by their false teaching, their spoken word, their spirit, their testimony. And you need to be careful and watch out. You need to be careful and, again, hold fast to the truth. Who is going to be given over to this delusion ultimately? We see it in verse 10. Those who refuse to love the truth and be saved. So if you want to be protected from false teachers, 
then and now, we must love the truth. We must love the Holy Scriptures. We must love the apostolic testimony. We must be New Testament Christians, New Testament church. And therefore, in light of that, we see Paul exhorting the church then to stand firm. Look at verse 15. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. So again, the antidote to deception is holding fast, standing firm in the apostolic faith that we have in the New Testament. So we've seen Paul address the issue of discouragement. We've seen Paul address the issue of deception. And thirdly, we see Paul address the issue of deliverance, of deliverance. And we see this in chapter 3, verses 1 to 5. Paul is suffering unending persecution, as well as are the other apostles. Paul's been imprisoned. Paul will die for the faith. And Paul now deals with the issue of deliverance by asking the church to pray for the advance of the ministry. Pray for the advance of the ministry. As I look out and see your beautiful faces this morning, each one of you is an answer to prayer. Each one of you is an answer to prayer. That we, the Lord's gifted us with this building to worship in is an answer to prayer. That you're here nodding your heads as I'm saying follow the Bible is an answer to prayer. I'm seeing my brothers who church plant and do ministry nodding their heads. We know what it's like when you're just beating your head trying to make something happen and nothing is happening. And then some old widow in another part of the world's praying for your ministry and all of a sudden the heart softens. The new visitor comes. The ministry of the word advances by prayer. And Paul, you know, if anyone could have a, a big head, it would be Paul, right? He was, I mean, he was doing his thing to persecute Christians. Jesus singles him out of all the people in the world, knocks him off his donkey, reveals himself to Paul. You know, Paul could say, hey, I'm special. Jesus knew I was the man. Uh uh-uh. uh. How often have we seen in Paul's letters saying things like, I toil. Him we proclaim, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works in me. Or saying things like, though I worked harder than any, though not I, but the grace of God working in me. Even we saw last week as Paul was encouraging the church of Thessalonica to be sanctified, because it's God's will for you. At the end, he says, brothers and sisters, God will do that in you. Even your sanctification, even though it feels like you're working hard at it, it's God who's working in you to complete it. Philippians 1.6, he who began a good work and you will be faithful to complete it. Right? 
So we must ever be vigilant in prayer. And as Paul deals with uh, the need for deliverance, we see he gives two prayers. And these are two ways we can continue to pray for one another and for the ministry today. The first is to pray for the word of the Lord to advance. And the second is that the ministers would be delivered, that the church would be delivered. You see in chapter, one, verse, uh, chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, Paul says, Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you, and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men, for not all have faith. So two ways that we can pray regularly, daily for one another, even as Paul encouraged them in the first century, is to pray that the word of the Lord would advance in power and faithfulness and fruitfulness as we today, as the church of Jesus Christ, carry forward that apostolic ministry, not infallibly as the apostles spoke. We, we do it fallibly, but we carry forward the tradition given to us. Pray that that would advance because that's essential for it to advance. We want... First Presbyterian to advance. If we want our colleagues at Rock Church and around this country and around the world to advance as we are all doing our part in the Lord's mission, we must pray for one another. We must ask God to do it. And likewise, especially as Paul prays for uh, himself and his colleagues, ask them to pray for their deliverance from wicked, evil men, that the ministers of the gospel would be liberated from the molestation of wicked and evil people seeking to, squ to squelch the word, to snuff out the word, to slander the word. Pray for our deliverance. In this section, Paul also gives two assurances in regards to these prayers he reminds the church that God will guard you from the evil one. As you hold fast to the faith, God will guard you from the evil one. And he also encourages the, the church, I love this, that you will continue to follow the apostolic faith. Look at verses 3 to 5. He says, but the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord about you, that you are doing and will do the things we command. So again, they, the sign of their authenticity as Christians is that they are following the authentic apostolic tradition, testimony, commands. We're sure that you are doing and will do the things that we command. So we've seen thus far, Paul addressed the issue of discouragement, deception, and deliverance. In each of these sections, he's pointing them back to the apostolic faith, testimony, tradition, to the gospel we gave to you. The fourth and final thing he addresses is idleness, is idleness. And again, he's going to connect this to the apostolic 
faith. This is a, a section that I think maybe punches us between the eyes a little bit. Hits us in the nose, perhaps. Uh, when I first came to Norway and had the privilege of meeting many Christians who were um, interested in the Reformed faith and they were concerned with uh, what's going on in many of the churches in Norway too, whether it's charismatic or just dead liberalism, things going on that they didn't see in Scripture, I was really encouraged to meet so many of these brothers and sisters. And one of the uh, one of the big influences for them uh, was a guy named Paul Washer. Paul Washer um, is a Baptist missionary and a very eloquent speaker, powerful speaker, uh, and I respect a lot of what he teaches. And one of the, the sermons that everyone was so excited about, I think it was called something like the, uh, the Angry Youth Message or the Shocking Youth Message, something like that. It was on YouTube. And in that message, you know, he's, uh, Paul Washer is just kind of owning kind of dead Christianity, fake Christianity. And you, you hear the, the audience is like, amen, yeah, they're clapping. And then he says something of the fact, I don't know why you're clapping, I'm talking about you. And there's like silence. You know, we love seeing other people get owned. <laughs> we don't like getting owned. And, and my thought is it's easy to love a minister who says hard things who's not your own pastor. But I kind of wonder how these people would feel if this guy was their week-in and week-out pastor. They might have a different opinion of Paul Washer. And as I've been a minister for a long time now, I've found in Sunday schools and other teachers, you know, when you ask for prayer requests, you know, or you hear people talk, it's so easy to just complain about what's out there, right? Talk about, oh, the world's going to hell in a handbasket. You know, oh, this person's bad, this corruption there. Rather than point the, point the fingers here and to build one another up, to challenge one another, you know, it's so safe to just kind of do this. And that's our tendency rather than going here. And in this final section of Second Thessalonians, I think Paul is, to many people that have been hearing this letter read, because they would read Paul's letters, are probably going, yeah, yeah, judge the wicked. Judge the wicked. Yeah, those fools are deceived by Satan. And then all of a sudden, Paul's going to go, why are you laughing? I'm talking about you. And he's going to deal with lazy church members that need to get owned and they need correction and rebuking to go back and follow the apostolic faith. So he has to address idleness. Now we don't know exactly the context of this idleness, but it's likely that some twisted view of eschatology, the end times, is leading some to think, well, Jesus is coming soon, so I don't need to work anymore. Or it may just be what we see in every age, lazy church members that don't want to do the work of the ministry and want to ride off the backs of others. 
what we see here is, a, I would say, a perennial problem. We see in this final section that Paul tells the church to keep away from idle Christians, from lazy Christians who do not follow the apostolic tradition. Look at verse 6. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus. So here Paul's giving another apostolic command. We command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. So Paul has in view here, uh, when he says brother, someone that would consider themselves a Christian or that they are viewed as a church member, but that they are both lazy and they are not following the faith. They're not following the apostolic tradition given to us by the likes of Paul and others. And Paul has strong words for them. He reminds the church of the example that the apostles set. We see in verse 7, For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us. Again, the apostolic tradition. Imitate us, what we did. Because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. And he goes on again. They could have asked for money because they were sowing the gospel and the Thessalonians were receiving the gospel. But he said in verse 9, he says, It was not because we do not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. In other words, the example that the apostles strove to set for the church is don't be an unnecessary burden to the church. Don't be an unnecessary financial burden to the church. Don't drag the church back by not helping and participating in the work of ministry. You know, we've seen in both in Romans and 1 Corinthians how we're given spiritual gifts to build up the body. We saw in Ephesians how it's only when each part does its work that the whole is built up in love. So that actually don't be a hindrance to the ministry by not doing your duty and doing your part as we did, by not working hard. And we actually see that Paul views this issue so seriously that the church may even need to excommunicate lazy, idle church members. Now, that would be a shock, I think, in our culture, wouldn't it? Colin, a commentator, Colin Nichols, says, Paul strongly commands the community as a whole to discipline by disassociation those who are not working but are depending on others for a living. The community is to keep away from these idlers, which probably means excommunicating them. Paul takes the sin of these people seriously, but at this point he still regards them as brothers. But again, reminded that even discipline is for the purpose of restoration, that you hope that they will come back. This issue gets, comes to a point in verse 11. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. So not only are they lazy, but they're gossips. Now such persons, verse 12, we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ 
to do their work quietly and earn their own living. So now, you know, it's, again, it's like, why are you clapping? I'm talking about you. Now Paul says, you such persons. There were many were probably in the church hearing this letter read. As someone's reading it, or the elder of the church is reading it, we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ. So they're placing these lazy Christians in the view of Christ's judgment Work quietly and earn a living. Work quietly and earn a living. To the faithful, he says in verses 13 to 15, don't grow weary of doing good, but take note of the disobedient and have nothing to do with them. Again, have nothing to do with them. Verse 14, if anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. So again, that purpose of church discipline, where you're formally taking note of a person by name and not having anything to do with them, is for the purpose of restoration, that they would be ashamed, that they would repent, and that they would come back to the faith. I know firsthand a number of you have had to disassociate with people because they claim to be Christian, but they're living with their boyfriend or girlfriend and not married. Or they're professing to be a Christian, but living like the world. And that has harmed your own families. It's the same thing in the church. We have to address this issue. And when we have addressed this issue, we have got pushback. It's not been always pleasant. But if we're to be a faithful New Testament church, we have to address the idol in the busybody. And I want to just say, as we're a young church plant, if we, again, want to see this church grow and the ministry grow, Each member has to do their part. Each member has to do their part. I was uh, talking to uh, one of our our, um, uh, church attenders. I didn't ask for permission. I'll just keep the story generic, but uh, about some military things. And um, with some of the kind of crazy social experimentation going on in the military, you have fewer and fewer people handling the load. You have fewer and fewer people having to handle the load and do the work. And that's just deadly for a nation's military readiness. You know, if you're in the field of battle, if you're in the field of battle and you have people just sitting on their haunches, not charging the enemy when the command is to go, who suffers? It's the faithful. And likewise in the church, when we are given specific direct commands from the word of God, and if all of us as one soldier does not charge forward in obedience, the faithful suffer. And so Paul says the way to deal with that is to discipline and excommunicate the lazy. 
the idle, the busybody, the gossip, because those people actually might be the reason you get a bullet in the head. So this is where Paul kind of concludes the letter, and it might feel like a bit of a punch in the nose. But he's calling us to work like men, work like women, be adults, be mature, be hard-working. Serve with all your might while you live. And as we pray for this ministry, pray for the unity and the strength of it as we grow together in using the gifts. Every person in this church this morning has a spiritual gift, at least one, that God's given to you for building up this body that, the God, that God has made you a part of. And we each need to do that work so that the whole can advance. That this apostolic tradition that's been now entrusted to us in the word of God will be advanced. I want to say one final thing and then conclude this message. And again, I'm not going to say this to point outside, to do the opposite of what I just uh, talked about a few moments ago. But I think that here in Norway and in Scandinavia, we are um, especially susceptible to the idleness issue. And the reason I say that is I look at the the welfare state that is Norway. I look at the welfare state that is Norway. Now, there are many virtues to the, to the system that we have in this country. Very, there's very few that are properly in poverty. Uh, as a result, there's very low crime, relatively speaking, to other parts of the world. Uh, and that there is a, a, a good, I would say, a good safety net for... Um, hard-working citizens when they fall on, I don't believe in luck, but a bit of bad luck, fall on hard times. And there are some wonderful benefits to the system. But I think there's also some very significant downsides to it, and I want to connect it to the church in a moment. But when I was in uh, my Samfenskunskap uh, class, my social studies class for permanent residency, you know, I was told that uh, only a third of, of the country is working. A third is retired, but then another third is living off the system. And so the problem of idleness really becomes a huge problem when people are living on the system. And I'm not talking about, again, people that are hardworking and that have fallen on bad times and are in the system for a while and working to get out of it. I'm talking about the people who I've been told about by a number of you, they're like called navers, like people who just intentionally live off the system with no desire to get out of the system and to just stay in the system. That if, if Norway didn't have oil money and we were, say, a third world country in Africa, the country would be in abject poverty we'd be in adject poverty. And as we as Christians live in this air, it can be easy to fall into that mindset. You know, for example, we, as, as a church, we do not collect funds from the government, but we could 
and a lot of a lot of churches and organizations receive money from the government through the tax system. And as a result, Norwegian, a lot of Norwegian Christians, I don't want to say everyone because I don't know, this is just what I've been told, as a general rule, don't give to the church. They don't give to the church at all. We're just used to the state, the nanny, taking care of everything. But we see in the New Testament is that there's a no free lunch policy. There's a no free lunch policy. Paul says in verse 10, For even when we were with you, we would give you this command, If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. So the danger for us as Christians is if we take on kind of the, the easygoing mindset that's so easy to take on because of the welfare state in Scandinavia, Norway specifically, we are not going to succeed in advancing the mission. Christians around the country will not succeed in advancing the ministry because we've been conditioned by the culture to, to sit on our backsides. Now, I know that that's not the true Norwegian spirit because I know the immigrants that came to America, and I know a lot of you, and that's not your spirit, and you are being reformed by the word of God, but I think we need to be ever vigilant as a church that we don't fall into that, well, I'll let somebody else do it, or I'll ride off of the back and the energy and the work of somebody else in the church rather than owning my part of it. And that's the message for us. We can't change what others do, but we can change what we do. And as a church, and as people from Norway and around the world, this beautiful picture before my eyes, I wish you could see what I see this morning, of people from around the world, we're called to a higher standard, to the apostolic standard, to work hard, to work diligently with our own hands, to not be an unnecessary burden. We are to care for the needs of one another, and we are to care for the, whether it's financial or physical or whatever, we are to, we are to care for one another, but to not have such an attitude where we become an unnecessary burden to the church or to each other because we're not willing to do what we must do to work hard, to work diligently. The apostolic model was, that was given to the church was men who worked hard, men who stayed true to their word, men who suffered for what they believed in, men who died for what they believed in, and who gave their all for the joy of glorifying the name of Jesus in their bodies for the bride of Christ that Jesus paid his own blood for. So the preciousness of the church, and I'll close with this, must be greater than the sports car and the house and the boat and the vacations and the leisure life that we have the privilege to enjoy in this country. The preciousness of the blood-bought church must be greater than the glory of this world the promotion in our jobs, the, the praising of the culture, the glory of Christ and his blood pot church must be greater than that or we will fail to make it to the day of glory and see one another. And when we see each other, we're rejoicing because we're numbered among the people of God. Because we will stand there one way or the other with joy or with shame. And how much worse for those who were given the apostolic faith. 
but who refuse to love the truth. So brothers and sisters, there's a word for each of us this morning from the word of God as Paul addresses the issues of discouragement, deception, deliverance, and idleness. I hope you've at least written those four words down this morning as I encourage you to take notes. And I want to encourage you as you leave this afternoon to think about which of those four words is God particularly impressing upon you? Are you dealing with discouragement right now? And how can God's word for you in this letter give you encouragement to press on in the fight? Are you dealing with deception? Are you still kind of flirting with the false teaching that is so popular and just the man-centered religion that's so popular, sadly, even in many evangelical circles today? And what does God's word have to say about that? Do you need deliverance or do you need to increase your, in your prayer life to pray for the word to advance in your life, in your family, in the church? Or are you dealing with laziness and that you need to confess some things to God or to someone else, own it, and then move on and ask God for that energy to do better? Discouragement, deception, deliverance, and idleness. And all of it, the message, the antidote is follow the tradition. Follow the apostolic faith. As a church and as individuals, let's be New Testament Christians. Let's be a New Testament church. And even when we suffer, may the word of the Lord advance through us together in power and in fruitfulness that as we wear the Lord's jersey, uniform, that the name of God would be glorified in us. Let's pray.